please give your attention to a reading from God's Word. Psalm chapter 80, to the choir master according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out, sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this is a time in the season of Advent in which we are looking at a number of different simultaneous themes. As we mentioned earlier, it is a theme in which we anticipate the Lord's coming in Christmas. And when I say the Lord's coming in Christmas, I don't mean that Christ comes again in Christmas, but as many of the songs we sing and poems we read for example, um, in one of the Christmas hymns, it is, we ask the Lord to be born in us today. This notion that Christ, as he did not find any room, as his parents were looking for room in the town of Bethlehem, that he would find room in our lives and in our hearts. And so we take the history of Jesus Christ's life and we apply it spiritually. Many people uh, among the Christian church in the West have a very good experience with that sort of reading of the story of Jesus. They take the life and times of Jesus and they apply it in a spiritual sense to their own lives. And this is exactly what we do in the time of Advent. It is not strange or it should not be strange to you that we would go back to the history of Israel and use their experiences and re 
recapitulate them or repress them out or reapply them to how we as Christians wait for the coming of the Lord in glory. That is to say, our great hope is that as Christ ascended and the angels told the disciples, the apostles, that just as Christ had ascended, so also he will descend. He, as he is left, he will return, that he'll return to make the wrong things right, that he'll return to fully establish justice, even as he is doing that in his present reign. And so again, last week, we had Christ the King Sunday in which we celebrated the high glory and beauty of the present reign of Jesus Christ. And yet now in this time of Advent, we begin again and we turn our, we turn our memories, our minds, our readings, our songs, we turn our celebration to why was it necessary for Christ to come? And, and why is it necessary that Christ come again? This is what we are celebrating when we are celebrating Advent. As you might have been able to perceive, through the tempo and type of songs we chose, it is not a season of self-flagellation in which we beat ourselves up and, and do spiritual works of service in order to earn the, a right place with God or, or somehow afflict our souls to merit God's favor. We do afflict our souls, but not in order to merit God's favor, but to position ourselves in a place where we can receive in fact, the whole point of the Christmas story, as it's often told, is that if Christ does not find room in your heart, Christmas cannot be any, it cannot apply to you. Because Christmas is not just a world-changing thing, it's supposed to be a soul-changing thing. And so, even though we're going through this season of Advent, it may seem strange to some of you if you've never celebrated Advent before, why would we go and remember what it was like for Israel to not have the Messiah? it shouldn't be that strange because we're so accustomed to it as Christians. So I just want to encourage you that as we go through the season, it's not a season in which we need to run away from God or a season in which we try to lower ourselves in order to earn God's approval or favor, but rather it's a season in which we reflect on the things which were necessary for Christ to do and as they were necessary for Christ to do, where that necessity came from. It's specifically the sin of all of mankind, and most specifically, as we'll be celebrating in the next few weeks, the sin of Israel. So if you've been here during Advent before, you may remember that we spend a lot of time in the books of Isaiah, some time in Malachi, a few passages in Jeremiah. But this year, I've decided to do something completely different. We're actually going to spend four weeks in the Psalms, and each of these psalms is a psalm that's very appropriate for the time of Advent because they will cover a very, number, a very short number of themes, most specifically the sins of the nation. Because I think we're at a time in our country in which the church would do well to re-examine what did God tell his people to do at times of great moral crisis. What did he call them to do? What did he call them to remember? And we see that take place in this psalm. So this message is, on the ruin of Israel and the salvation of God. That is, God answers the spiritual failure of his people with a particular promise. And as we're going to see in this psalm through the poetry, that promise is only satisfied in Jesus Christ. I want to look at three specific things. First, God's kindness to Israel as he led them out of Egypt. This is a very common theme for us at GCF because we want to impress upon our people the understanding that God was gracious in delivering 
the Israelites from Egypt. Many people think that the law given through Moses was a harsh thing that was given by God as a chastisement, and yet we ought to see it as it was. It was the crown jewel. It was the capstone of a great building that he was building when he ripped them out of Egypt and installed them in the land. In this, in this psalm, the psalmist uses the language of a vine and a garden, but we, we know that this is God's dealing. He's establishing a place for himself through the people of Israel. And then we're going to look at Israel's sin and her subsequent chastisement, that is the sin which brought on persecution and destruction and, and loss and death and war. Those sins which were so grievous and in number, we're not going to actually enumerate the sin, but rather we're going to talk about the type of that sin. And then finally, God's salvation as done through his son. And we'll see how the writers of this, or the writer of this psalm actually is giving a very clear hint to what is the greatest solution to the people of Israel's problems. It is someone to come who will be a shoot off of a branch. And we're going to see how that all of this imagery that's used about this vine that's cut off is completely resolved by this son of God. So this prophetic psalm shows the grace of God in leading his people out of Egypt and establishing them in the land. This psalm, if you were listening closely, you may have noticed that it was composed or it's, it's constructed in three cycles. If you look at verse 3, verse uh, verse uh, 19, and also verse 7, 3, 7, and 19, you see these refrains, restore us, O God, or restore us, O God of hosts, or restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. We know when we read our scriptures that repetition is the way that the writers use to call us to get to, to, to attention to something. There's a great dilemma in this psalm, the people are unable to restore themselves and they need God to restore them. They are without the ability to be restored. And interestingly, as we'll see in just a minute, verse 5 and verse 6 and uh, verse 4 specifically, it looks as if there will be no means to restore the people. Because even as this psalmist is saying, restore us, O Lord, verse 3, as soon as he moves to verse 4, how long will, be, will you be angry with your people's prayers? Whenever you're reading the Old Testament scriptures, there's often a great dilemma that the sins of Israel have become so grievous that the means for worship, the, the wine, the, the grain, the oil, they're cut off. And so they have no way to make atonement for their sins as a nation. The sacrifices are polluted. The priesthood has gone into apostasy. They cannot approach God. And this really is a grand picture of all mankind, isn't it? We have no means to approach God on our own, and yet the Lord is kind and gracious to even suspend his anger to answer the prayer of this psalmist. Each section, therefore, in this psalm deals with God's gracious dealings to his people and then brings up the necessity, the mention of what does God need to do about the sin's of his people. What can God do? What God, what God might do or what might God do in answering those wicked and rebellious sins? 
As the psalmist speaks to God each time, he uses his name or a title or a description of of what he's done, and each time he then petitions God for grace by reminding God of his grace. This is a pattern for prayer in the Christian walk that we, before we begin to ask God for our needs, that we actually express God, express to God the glory of his person and being. Jesus taught it this way, we do not begin asking, give us this day our daily bread, but rather, our Father who is in heaven, let your name be holy. Or your name is holy, let it be holied on the earth as it is in heaven. And so this psalmist is showing the pattern of prayer by explaining to God or reminding God, if you will, of his gracious dealings, saying, God, if you were gracious when we were in captivity, how much more could you be gracious when we are in the land but in despair and in the land but at the threat of exile? This is what the psalmist is doing. He's reminding God of his gracious dealings in the past. And this actually serves as a reminder to us. Because when we are caught in places where we are like these Israelites, like a vineyard that's been run over by wild animals, in a place of spiritual turmoil, we get to the place of of remembrance by turning again to the history of what has God done to his people in the past? How has God been faithful to his people? Oh, that he would do that again. Verse one, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. He uses the title of God, O shepherd of Israel, and then you who lead Joseph like a flock to remind God that he brought up this nation of shepherds. When Joseph brought his brothers down to Egypt, he told them, when you meet Pharaoh, you must tell Pharaoh, we are a people of shepherds. We are, we are a people who keep livestock. We keep the sheep. Because the shepherds and the Egyptians had a rivalry between themselves. And so he reminds God of his special treasure as being the shepherd, not of, of wild animals, but of sheep. Sheep that he himself has taken care of and loved and drawn them out of a nation. And then this psalmist then is asking God to remember that. He then begins to ascribe glory to God by, spe- by speaking of where God has permitted his glory to reside. He says, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. Now many people, when they hear this, they think, oh, those are the cherubim in heaven where God is surrounded, as we see in Revelation 4 and 5, by multitudes of angels. But actually, if you understand the history of Israel, this psalmist is specifically referring to the mercy seat, which is in the tabernacle. The psalmist is saying, Lord, your people have sinned greatly. We're being ravaged by the nations, yet you desired, you wanted to live in the midst of your people. You wanted to reside and make your home and tabernacle among them. Verse two, before Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, stir up your might and come and save us. We don't have the time to go into exactly what Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin refer to, but we know clearly from the history of Israel that these were the regions that were on the periphery. They were on the borders of Israel. And it was probably the case during the time of the captivity is that they were the first line of attack, if you will. When you think about a nation, its borders are the place where the war begins or the war begins to, when, it, when an invasion is happening, those are the regions where 
the, the fighting takes place first because the enemy wants to destroy the walls of the nation. And so this psalmist is saying, your people in this prophetic vision are being attacked. Lord, would you take up your arm? Would you use your might and save your people and make your might be demonstrated? And so how is the arm and might of the Lord demonstrated in this Psalm. That's, that's what this first section, verses 1 through 3, really are saying is there's a great need for God to do again what he did in bringing us out of Egypt in restoring us to health and delivering us from our sin. Not only does Yahweh lead his people out of Egypt, he is enthroned among them from the tabernacle. The God who saved them for himself is delighted to live among them. This is very important as we get to Christmas and, and celebrating the incarnation because that is exactly what Jesus does in Christmas is he comes and is the fulfillment of this promise long ago that God would take the people to himself and dwell among them, live with them. The shepherd of Israel in this passage is now seen as the master gardener. God who had lovingly delivered Israel out of bondage also cleared away the nations. So there's two things that God is doing in this passage. He's reminding his people that he brought them out of Egypt. And not only did he defeat the Egyptian army, as this psalm specifies, he, like a master gardener, cleared the land of the evil nations. It is as if he went in and took uh, a, you know, some sort of um, you might think of, you can imagine a riding lawnmower and chainsaws and, uh, you know, tillers. And he came into a wilderness that was overgrown and he removed all of that and established a place for his people to live. He then planted them as a vine in the promised land and caused them to grow. Look at verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. This is talking about God's dealings with his people in tenderness. And the imagery here makes us, makes us we, if we press it out, it makes us realize how sovereign and powerful God is. If you take a vine through a wilderness, it will dry out. So God not only perfectly pulls the vine out of the ground of Egypt, he cuts the roots in the right way and, and then preserves it, waters it, carries it in a proper fashion so that it is not damaged. And then while it is waiting on the side, unplanted, he clears out the garden. He removes the nations that were filling the land of Cana with their sin. He wipes them away, he rips them out, and he digs up the land and it's good land. It's land in which the people of Israel can send their roots and grow and begin to prosper. Verse 9, you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Under God's kindness and provision, therefore, the nation was blessed and became a mighty people in the earth and began to bless the other nations. See, when we read the scriptures and we read them in the legend or the key, the codex, if you will, of the imagery of the rest of the scriptures, we see quite clearly that the people of Israel were being given a great grace by God. It wasn't that he just kind of ripped them out of Egypt and established them in the land and then installed them and left them to obey the, the law. No, God was a master gardener and tending to his people and keeping his people and wanting to come in to that vineyard slash garden and have fellowship with his people. Verse 10, the mountains were covered under its shade. Now I want you to close your eyes for just a second. I want you to imagine the Lord 
has now taken his people and he's brought them out like a vine. He's cleared a field. He's put in a vine in this field. And now the, vin- the vine became so tall it covered mountains. You see, the psalmist is not using, you can open your eyes. If the, psalmist is not, the psalmist is not using imagery that happened in real life. He's using a, a, this imagery to describe the spiritual blessing that God did in, in physically and, and spiritually delivering them from Egypt, its culture, its religion, and establishing them, giving them the light of the law, putting them in the land, defeating their enemies, driving out the nations and causing them to be prospered. It's a very interesting story when you, when you begin to understand the blessing that begins to come and stream to Israel. All of these nations begin to bring them gold and silver and they, they excel in their trade and they have choice wood from around the world. At this time, they, they didn't have modern transportations and logistics systems. It's a miracle, not only that God brought them out of Egypt, it's a miracle that they prospered to the degree that they did. At one point with Solomon, the queen of Sheba arrives at his uh, location and is moved basically to become a Yahweh worshiper when she sees the glory that God has bestowed upon his kingdom, upon Solomon's kingdom. Because she recognized the favor and blessing of God that this nation, which was nothing, not only would escape Egypt, and, and all of the world would have heard of that. Not only would they have driven out the nations of Canaan, and all of the world would have heard of that. They were established, beautified, glorified. They were given everything needed for life and godliness, so to speak. Now, this being said, at this great height and glory that, that existed in the people of God, in their history as a nation everything begins to fall apart. Though God has been so favorable to the people of Israel, he's now indignant and angry. And the psalmist, because he's using these cycles, verse 1 to 3, verse 4 to 7, and 8 to 19, these cycles kind of take us through the story again and again. He doesn't really explain how it's come to pass. He doesn't really delineate, he doesn't really describe in detail the sort of sins that the people of Israel have completed or, or done. And at first I was very puzzled by this because usually prophetic psalms, psalms that describe the exile or the judgment of a nation or God's people, they often delineate or, or very clearly explain this is what you did. For example, when Sodom and Gomorrah is judged, they're, they're told specifically what they did, that they were filled with bread, that they had no compassion on the poor. It wasn't just the sin of sexual sin, it was greed and avarice and and a lack of compassion. And so what's interesting to me about this psalm is there's no one sin that's named. You see, what I think the psalmist is getting at is that the sort of sins that the people of God were committing weren't one thing. We know, it was, we know they committed idolatry, but clearly it must have been, I think if I understand what sin is, it must have been every law was broken and all of the nation was given in sin over and over again. In, we know specifically through other passages that they were engaged in false religion, that they were doing, uh, that they were making idols, that they were worshiping them. But I have to believe, based on other minor prophets and, and such, that they were engaged in every form of evil, false weights and measures, uh, oppressing the poor, oppressing the, the orphan, oppressing the widow, perverting justice in courtrooms. These sorts of sins that are on a national level 
I think that's what is in view here. The sort of sins that lead you to realize it is not the sins of the people, it is the sin of the people. That they themselves, although they were delivered from Egypt, they've returned to Egypt in their hearts in a way. Their, their false religion has become so offensive to him that their prayers anger him further. This was what I was referring to earlier. There are times in the history of God's people where the sin is so grievous that we hear the wines cut off, the grain is gone, the oil is run out, there is no way to offer up sacrifices, all of the livestock have been corrupted. There's no way that we can come into God's presence through the system of atonement that he had set up for the time. There's no way we can return, and God tells them that he's angry with their new moon festivals and their celebrations and their vainglorious religion and, and puffed up religious services, but their heart being far from him. I think that's what's in view here in verse four. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? This is a very interesting thing to me because we often think of God as a God who is perfectly loving, and we then distort what God's perfect love means to mean that he is persistently loving his people, no matter the state or quality of their hearts and lives. And yet we see in this psalm very clearly, God has gotten to the place with his people where he is angry. He is indignant. It is offensive to him that they should even come and ask him to bless them, but not come and ask, them, ask him to bless them with a heart of contrition or a heart of repentance, but rather that they would be asking for things that would bless them physically, such as safety as a nation. You see, they, they don't want God to live in their midst, but they want God to bless them. And so he becomes angry with their prayers because they're not praying as they ought. They're praying, as James told us in our series in James, you, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask to spend it on your passions, on your perversion of heart, on your waywardness of spirit. And that's what the Lord is, is doing with his people. He says, I'm angry with your prayers. Because God is slow to anger, we know that the sin of the people is deeply offensive. When the Lord was leading the people out, Moses had the audacity after spending you know, weeks on a mountain beholding the glory of God and fellowshipping with the elders and eating a meal with Yahweh himself when this mountain was shaking and on fire and filled with smoke, Moses has the audacity to ask God, God, show me your glory. You see, Moses, by the Spirit of Christ, laid hold of something that God, although he manifested himself in such terrible and great ways, that there was something about the kernel of God that had not yet been demonstrated to Moses. And it was this, that God then said, I will show you my glory, but I'll, I'll have to protect you, and I'll place my hand over you, and you'll be hidden in the cleft of a rock. And as I go forth, I will pronounce my name before you, but I'll, I'll protect you so that you don't see me and are destroyed. And then he says his name as he proclaims it. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, rich in love. This is the sort of God that we love and worship. But interestingly enough, we, we love all those phrases, the Lord, the Lord God gracious, abounding, you know, but, but we forget that phrase, slow to anger. It doesn't say impossible to become angry. It says he's slow to anger. And so what we see when we know that and we see that God becomes angry with his people we can immediately dismiss the objection that God is a flippant and tyrant God 
or God is just a, a God who's quickly angered or is, or is, you know, he takes even the slightest, smallest sin and blows it out of proportion. No, God's justice is perfect. For God to say in these verses that he is angry with his people's prayers, that means that their sin had to do a certain things. It had to be pronounced. It had to be clear sin. It had to be protracted. That is, it had to go on for a long time. And it had to be pernicious. That is, it had to have evil intent. You see, there are sort of sins which are mistakes of character, which are failures of the moment. We think of these as white lies or, or not being as encouraging or not being as quick with our tongue. And there are other sins which are when we fully give ourselves to the rebellion of our hearts. Even as Christians who are made in the image of God and are remade by the Spirit after the image of Christ, we enter into times and conditions in which we make no attempt to defeat the temptation, but we fully give into it. We do not rule our hearts and we go on after that sin and we enter into it and we excuse it. We justify it. This is the sort of sin of God's people. Although they were chosen from Egypt, although they were persisted in the wilderness, although they were planted in the land and watered and and fertilized and were caused to grow above the mountains, they've now come to the place where God's angry with their sin. And it has to be because of this. That as we read in Deuteronomy 8 just a few days ago, that they have taken all of God's blessing and they've perverted it for their own use. And they've, they've taken every ounce of God's grace and used it for licentiousness. Another way to say this is their sin was clear. It wasn't a moral quandary. Like, for example, I love to give people, young Christians who are, are understanding what it means to bear false witness. I love, them, I love to give them the test of their ethics of, you know, if the Nazis knock on your door and you're hiding Jews and they ask you if you're hiding Jews, what's the answer? The answer is No. You do not aid the evil one in his evil. You know what the Nazis are there to do. And yet we often get in these situations, well, maybe you say yes and hope that God will say, no, you don't, you don't do that, just in case you're wondering. The, the, the point is, the sort of sins that God becomes angry with his people over are not sins like that. They're not moral quandaries where we, we don't know what to do in a situation. It's when we're fully given to our sin and we're not even trying to make war on it by the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, if you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will, will live. This is the sort of sin. It's clear, it's continuous, it's conscious. You're fully aware in your mind. You have a, a sobriety of mind and you say to yourself, I know this is wrong, I want it anyway. That's what sin is. Sin is not just the inability to do God's will. It's, not, it's the desire to not do God's will. It's knowing God's will and choosing to do it, to, to, to do it anyway. That's what the, the New Testament says. The law was given to mark sin. It was to reveal what sin is because it pressed upon its hearers the, the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of God's desire for his people, and yet they want to do it anyway. So, verse 8, or sorry, excuse me, verse 5, you have fed them with the bread of tears and have given them tears to drink in full measure. I want you to think about what this is saying. The, the psalmist is using this imagery of bread. And if you've ever had, I've had bread that's gotten wet before. It's terrible. And I don't think that's exactly what the psalmist is saying here. But he's saying the sort of bread that accompanies weeping 
We think of mealtimes as times of celebration. In the Christian church, we have feasts. For example, we're going to celebrate the feast of Christmas, and it's a time of celebration. We have people over to our homes, and we, we eat. And what this verse is saying is that the, the food that God is giving to his people is the sort of food that is not able to be celebrated. You fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. I love the poetry of this verse because this repetition is just so clear. You've given us bread of tears. No, no, not only that, you've given us drink of tears. Our meat and our drink, our, our food and our drink, our, our, our food and our water have become mournful. This is what is going on in the people of Israel. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. You see, not only is the sin and the plight of God's people so apparent to them, it's become apparent to the nations around them. That even though God's done this great work in bringing them out of Egypt and persevering them through the wilderness and installing them in the land and blessing them so that they were a vine that grew over the mountains, they've now become a people of, of despising. They've become a people that's, you, know, you don't even want to speak their name because you hate them that much. That's the sort of people that the people of Israel have become. Since God is love and he is a perfect father, how then can he have fed them and given them tears? This is the question you have to ask yourself. What is this saying about who God is? As a kind and gracious father, he does not at this time give them up to their deception, but disciplines them to know their sin. This is what the book of Hebrews is talking about when it says that those who are not disciplined are illegitimate children. But rather, those who are disciplined are disciplined because the Father wants them to know the error of their ways. This again is grace after grace after grace. It was gracious for God to bring them out of Egypt. It was gracious for God to persevere them in the wilderness. It was gracious for God to install them in the land and bless them. And it is also gracious for God to let them feel the effects of their sin so that they would not be, not be given up to the deception of loving evil. See, that's what Romans 1 talks about when it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How is it un unveiled? Is it unveiled with fire raining from the skies? No, it's revealed in this, that God gives up a nation to its evil. That after striving with that nation through the gospel for so long, those people or those persons are fully given over to their evil desires, and he makes no attempt to restrain their hearts any longer. It is God's grace in these verses which shows us he is redeeming his people. He is redeeming them even while they are about to go into exile. He teaches them in these circumstances that if they sow the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. In the book of Hosea, Hosea writes that because what he's saying is that the people of Israel have sown into sin, they've sown the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. This is the common thing that pastors like to, there's a quote that, you know, sin will take you further than you intended to go, keep you there longer than it intended to stay, and you'll pay more than you, and there's different versions of that. But the point is this, that, that sin, when it's fully given into, when it's just love for what it is, is rebellion against God, it becomes a monster, you see, earlier in the passage, it's mountains that rest under the shade of the vine, but later it becomes a boar who eats the vineyard, 
who runs through the vineyard and, and destroys it. It's an interesting verse here, but I think this is actually deeply applicable to our state as a nation. If you've paid any attention to the news in the last few weeks, dozens and dozens of high-profile people from governors and senators, movie producers, sports players, they've all been publicly accused in the court of opinion of sexual wrongdoing. And the rest of our entire country is at a loss. How can everyone be this evil? That's the question people are asking. And yet, just two years ago, our court, the highest court in our land, solemnized same-sex marriage, so-called same-sex marriage. You see, we've sown the wind, and we're reaping the whirlwind. Our country has been sowing the wind for a long time. This is the sort of moral condition of a nation that its walls are being broken down. Its vineyard is no longer gracious. It's now being eaten by animals. This is, this is us. Israel is America in a sense. Not that we're God's special and chosen nation. That's the people of God. But in a sense, our country is a nation which is leaving its spiritual moorings. It's leaving its foundation and it's giving in to sin. We've sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind. And though God was so kind in establishing Israel as a garden for his own pleasure, he himself has broken it apart. Remember, he planted them as a vineyard and they were allowed to take root. He cleared out the other nations. He tilled up the ground, as it were. He, he caused them to be blessed. He desired to live among them. In verse 1, we see he lived in the center of the tabernacle, which was in the center of the people. And though God established this garden himself, he rips it apart. Look at verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls? This is very interesting because when, when Israel goes into exile, it is not God himself who does the breaking of the walls by a spiritual hand. It's the Babylonians and Assyrians, right? And yet this psalmist is able to speak by the Spirit and see what God is doing in their doing. You have broken down its walls such that all who pass by the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. This notion of a boar and the other nations come in and ravage the garden and eat it, that it means they're destroying the vineyard. Due to their sins and rebellions, they are no longer a blessing to the nations, but are instead oppressed by them. Instead of the nations finding shade in the vine, they are now devouring it. There's an interesting parallel in the story of Jonah. After Jonah goes and preaches in Nineveh, he then on the outside, on his way back, he sits down in a booth and he makes himself a booth, but the sun is too hot. And so God graciously causes a vine to grow. Some, some translations call it a weed. It's, it's a vine that grows and then the very next day a worm comes and devours it. And this is a parable of what Jonah is experiencing because Jonah is going to an idolatrous nation, Nineveh, and preaching to them. And at the same time, historically, we know about when Jonah lived, the nation of Israel was being destroyed. He's, he's a prophet called to leave God's people and preach to the nations of the earth. And for a while, Israel was that vineyard that provided shade, that even the mountains were able to rest underneath the vine. But now at this point, through the imagery of the, of the psalm, the nations, the boar, the field, the field animals have come in and they've ruined the vineyard. They've trampled it. They've eaten everything. 
Isaiah speaks of this in his book as the forest of Israel being destroyed by a fire and an axe. And very interestingly, the psalmist uses the same image. They, the nations, have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Through the history of Israel and the imagery employed, therefore, the psalmist prophesies to us that sin is a destruction of the garden. It's not just something that we do that affects us personally or as communities that affect our cities. It's sin that's done on a national level. And it's a destruction not just of a person or a family or a church or a people group. It's destruction of a nation. And it's really a destruction of the garden. As Adam and Eve rebelled against God and his authority and then were expelled, so also the people of Israel have rebelled against God. They've renounced his grace. They've trampled on his mercy. And God now has destroyed that garden. Sin, therefore, destroys the place where fellowship with God occurs. This is why Paul is so eager to tell the Corinthians, do not sin sexually against your body, because your body is the temple of the Spirit. That's what he's trying to get across to them. Sin is a destruction of the place where God communes with man. Though God dwelt among his people, being seated above the cherubim in the holy place, the psalmist indicates he's departed. Very interestingly, he now says, verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven. You see, earlier in verse 1, it's the one who, he's the one who's seated above the cherubim. And now he's praying to God, not in the tabernacle any longer. He's now praying to the God who dwells in heaven. God has left the nation. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and the son whom you have made strong for yourself. Having mentioned the vine, that is the nation, the psalmist also describes the branch whom you have made strong for yourself. It's unfortunate, the ESV actually translates this verse, the stock that your right hand had planted, uh, and the son for whom you've made strong for yourself. But the stock is actually the word branch, and the same here in this verse. This word is rendered as son, but it signifies something far deeper. Whenever we do this with biblical imagery, we short-circuit its meaning, and we, we fail to see an aspect of the glory of Christ. This son is not simply Joseph or even Israel, as, as is so often spoken of of God's people as Israel being God's son, but is the Messiah himself, the son of God. Being from this burnt and cut-off vine, Jesus is then for, therefore seen as an evergreen offshoot. That is to say that the people of Israel are planted as a vine, The prophet, psalmist, says that the vineyard got cut down and it got burnt with fire, and yet God has now, from that vine, which is burnt and cut off, God has now caused a rod or a branch to come out of that vineyard and to come alive again. He himself, Jesus Christ, is the root of God's people. Though the people have been cut down, he then brings them back to life. And whereas God's hand was heavily upon the nation in judgment, the psalmist then says that his hand is strong on the Messiah, on the Son of God, not to curse, but to bless and to strengthen. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. It's such an interesting reversal that God's hand, which was heavy upon the nation of Israel in judgment, has now become heavy for the Messiah to establish him to be able to perform the great repair for his people. Now, because the Messiah is established, the people are then delivered from a wayward heart and returned to the Lord forever. 
This is what the psalmist is saying here in these verses. Then, only when your son is established, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. So the psalmist is celebrating the establishing of the son at the right hand of the father, being established there, and when we look to him, we will turn away from sin forever. In Christ, the wrath of God against sin is ended. That is, the judgment against the people is satisfied. The people are forgiven their sins, and the garden is reestablished. Remember, they were the vine that was cut off and burnt with fire, and now in this verse, they now get life. Everything is put right in the garden. Though Christ, the vine which was, through Christ, the vine which was burnt and cut down is now alive again. The people are redeemed from their judgment and prosper. Finally, now in Christ, and only in Christ, we see the answer to this threefold petition. You can almost hear the psalmist saying, Restore us, O God. And again, restore us, O God. Let the light of your face shine that we might be saved. And that's exactly what we find in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The great blessing of Aaron spoken over the people that the Lord would cause his, the light of his face to shine on his people is finally and totally fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who the New Testament tells us is the exact image and representation of his Father. In looking to Christ, we see the face of God and are strengthened to never turn away. I want to close with this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the psalmist is asking for God's face to shine upon his people. And yet, if we remember back to what we said about Moses, God warned Moses saying, you cannot see my face or else you will be destroyed. What Christ does is he doesn't just come to deliver his people from their sin and their judgment. He doesn't just come to deliver them from hell and take them to heaven. He also comes in the context of this psalm to reestablish the garden. He comes to put together a people who can finally dwell with their God. That is what I believe this psalmist is prophesying. He's not just prophesying about the Messiah and something about the Messiah's salvation, but everything that is fully entailed that that Messiah will do, he will bring back to life this vineyard which was cut off and burnt down. So let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would desperately, or we we desperately ask you, God, that you would show us our need for Jesus Christ, not just in coming to Christ at first, but in coming to Christ again and again and again. Lord, we pray that you would forgive the sins of our nation, the sins of our state, the sins of our city, the sins of this church, the sins of our families, and our sins ourselves, Lord. We, we see that sin that is carried on over and over again, it brings destruction of the place where we have fellowship with you. And Lord, we know that you want to have fellowship with your people. So God, we ask you that as we even as we anticipate celebrating again the coming of your son, that you would give to us understanding of our deep need for you and your deep grace for your people. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ who not only satisfies your wrath, but also fully and finally makes a place where we can have communion with you. 
Father, we, we thank you so much for the imagery and the poetry in this psalm. We pray, Lord, that you would communicate to our hearts something about the beauty and grace and, and mercy shown through Jesus Christ. We thank you for this great salvation. We ask, Lord, that by your spirit, we would not neglect it ever. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.